Time Out with Manu Kakopian. And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Time Out with Manu Kakopian. Today, I am joined by Rick Merigian, who pretty much wears a lot of hats in boxing as a manager, as an advisor, as a promoter, as a person who puts together the shows. Uh, Most prominently, he leads the career of Jose Ramirez, who is a unified champion in the 140-pound division, uh, who has a fight coming up February 1st. But Rick, most importantly, has uh, made his uh, career as a prominent businessman and entrepreneur in Fresno as a promoter, uh, working on, on a lot of big events. And Rick, thank you very much for taking the time with us and joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Half crazy, uh, a little bit out of it and stressed out, but but that's a good thing for me. And uh, if I wasn't that way, I'd be worried. Absolutely. And, you know, you got a big show coming up at the 1st of February in China, but where, what end of the world are you now? I'm in Fresno, California, the the, the third Armenian capital of the world. <laughs> yeah, and, and here I am in Los Angeles, which is uh, pretty much the biggest population outside of the country. And, you know, Fresno has a very big Armenian community as well, too, and some of the most famous Armenians ever have come out of Fresno. We're talking Jerry Tarkanian. We're talking Kirk Krikorian and William Saroyan. And there's just so much culture in Fresno of of Armenians, and and it's definitely been embedded in the city. Were you born in Fresno? I was born and raised here in Fresno. Yeah. What, what was what was that life like growing up for you? And 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 how did you end up in the crazy world of boxing? Um, good question. Um, I had a typical upbringing as a, as a kid, um, financially not too well off. Um, but, but for the most part, just a, a great childhood, you know, growing up very entrepreneurial as a kid, um, at age five, I was buying and selling garbage pail kids in front of a corner liquor store. Um, and then from there, uh, it just stayed with me. I think, um, coming from Fresno, you just have genetically that, entrepreneurial gene in you if you're Armenian and uh, you look for you know every angle or thing uh, along the way to attach to uh, to make a dollar and uh, from there I would go to uh, McLean High School in Fresno did graduate the top of my class uh, got accepted to Berkeley and Stanford and a few other places but couldn't afford the off-campus living so I, uh, I went to Fresno State and um, got an academic scholarship and a and a grant and uh, two jobs and off I went. And then one day I um, was sitting in a boring U.S. history class and, and a few other ones and getting ready to go to work. And one of my friends said, "Hey, you want to come over? Uh, you know, after work." And I didn't see my friends very often once college started because you get busy. I got bills to pay. No one's paying anything in work and school, and you're dead at the end of the day. But uh, I went by their house after work that night and um they said they were going to go to taco bell get in the car i got in the car and next thing i know i'm at a fraternity party on campus at fresno state now at the time i knew everybody except i didn't party i didn't do drugs but my friends did enough of it for me to last a lifetime so um long story short they kidnapped me and i'm standing in line to pay five bucks at the north gym and uh complaining the whole time get to the front of the line the guy tells me it's five bucks, and I'm like, five bucks? I don't want to pay to come into this dumb thing. 
And uh, my friend pays the $5 for me, pushes me through the door, and all I see is about 400 people and a DJ and some music and people talking. And I'm like, guys, I see this stuff at school every day. At the time, I would practice a little bit with the basketball team at Fresno State. It was the most famous era, as you know, the Tark era with Ray for Austin, Chris Heron, and uh, you guys were superstars, and we were ranked at that time in the top three. Uh, you know, so during that era, um, we had these, you know, superstars that I had access to, and they were friends of mine at school. Um, so I seen some of them. They shut the music off. The party was done. I didn't think nothing about it and went to work the next day in class. And then uh, a couple of days later, I'm in a that boring U.S. history class, lecture hall, adding up my work hours. And um, like, you know, 60 times 10, $600. Well, that's good. This month I'm 500 short after two jobs of paying what I owe. And then I just wrote down 400 times five, which was $2,000 and said, very arrogantly, how could they make $2,000 in one night? And I know I'm smarter than the two guys that did that. From there, I went to every house party. You can you can find nightclub. You name it, I went to it and just took notes, and I still have a notebook to this day. When the cops would shut the parties down, everyone's running. I would go talk to the cops and say, hey, why did you shut this down? They said, well, we didn't have a dance permit, and there was no insurance, and there's a noise ordinance. And I wrote it all down. And then – um. I had decided that if I could put a public dance party on that the cops couldn't shut down, that was legal to stay open and not threatened at any point and make it all ages uh, so that people could attend that I would hit you a know, home run or a lottery ticket or something. So I decided to use my student loan check, my financial aid check and throw a party. <laughs> so at that point I had uh, planned a party for after the Fresno state UMass game in 1998. And, um, Talked to the guys at school, had a friend that worked at Kinko's, gave him 50 bucks. He printed me 3,000 color flyers. I uh, had another friend that worked at the uh, college radio station who I told to talk about it every single break and stop set, and I would give him a VIP pass so he could talk to girls that I thought would come. And, uh, off I went. I used to put up posters at bus stops, flyers under dorm rooms. Uh, you name it, I did it. Asked the guys on the basketball team to help me out, Ray for Austin and those guys. Um, because I knew they had tons of girls surrounding them and this and that and promoted for 30 days. And then uh, the night came, rented the Rainbow Ballroom in Fresno, California. The owner gave it to me for half the cost. I just was honest and said, I don't know what I'm doing. It's my first time. And he was a big Mexican promoter at the time that owned the Rainbow Ballroom. And he kind of laughed and said, let me help you out a little bit. I don't know if you know what you're in for. So uh, at that point, I used all the money, paid for the security, the permits, the licensing, the you name it, to do it right. And the flyer said the doors opened at 9, and 9 o'clock it was, event night, and no one was there. 10 o'clock, nobody was there except those two friends that will die with you no matter what you do or where you go. 11 o'clock came, and no one was there, and I walked in and told the DJ that I had paid for, the security guys, hey, guys, I, I tried, but obviously there's not a person here, so... Uh, we're going to go ahead and shut this down. And I sat on the steps with my face in my hands and just thought my life was over with. And um, I literally lifted my head at 11:10, right around there. And, so, and the streets were lined with cars and lights. I'm like, what is this? It looked like that old movie Field of Dreams. Fresno State had went into triple overtime with UMass that night. And the game was just down the street at the Salon Arena. So that's what the delay was. Um, triple overtime. So long, long story short, that night, 2,000 people paid 
eight and nine dollars to to get into the rainbow ballroom and um my me as a promoter had taken shape and uh dumped the money on my mom's floor at three in the morning and she thought i was selling drugs <laughs> i came with my friends and i uh, explained to her what was going on and off i went the parties turned into more parties that turned into concerts to comedy shows to arena acts and as a promoter i've promoted george lopez for nine years from a 400 person room to uh, a record in fresno was sixteen thousand at the save march center i've promoted beyonce um the only person to do that here i've done every type of hip-hop act r&b act um i've put on mma shows fighting events i've done events for the lakers when they won the championship in las vegas and done stuff for um guys like Dwayne wade and nba players so it's been quite a journey since using that student loan check and aid check to throw a party, and that, that's how I became a promoter. That's quite a story right there. And, you know, you look back at every single person who starts their career. Everyone has that big break. Everyone has that aha moment. Everyone has that one point they can turn to in history and you have yours and then you know you're talking about entertainment you're talking about basketball mainstream stars and now you're in boxing which you know in in 2020 is considered to be a niche sport but it's all over tv and you're presiding over one of the more pound for pound better fighters out there and jose ramirez and i remember when you and i first talked was in 2012 when you were presiding over Jose Ramirez's Olympic career, and you've been with him ever since. And just recently, you were nominated by the Boxing Writers Association of America as a Manager of the Year candidate. And t talk to me about what that life in boxing has been like for you o over the last decade. So being a promoter, I've promoted every type of event there is and genre there is, and there's nothing like a prize fight. Nothing compares to it. I mean, not Beyonce, not George Lopez, not Kevin Hart. I've even done an event for the Kardashians in New York. Nothing compares to a major prize fight, both historically and now. Gets the blood flowing, the, the revenue streams, the people that attend. So for me, you know, it was a preparation the entertainment world and all the problems I went through and mistakes I made and good things I did all prepared me to enter into the boxing world and deal with what I would be faced with. And it's a dirty world. It's a world full of cutthroat people and dads that think they're business people and drunk uncles and cousins that think they can uh, run a fighter's career. And just, it's just a wild west. And I, I, I know to this day that, I was prepared, you know, prior by all those other things. And um, uh, from that point forward, it's allowed me to be different. There's no one in boxing as a manager that can go and put an entire fight on for their fighter and have that fight actually be relevant and draw thousands of people and make money and have interest in it. So the unique part that I've had is I can put on an entire show for my guy. I can act as an agent and go out and get endorsement deals better than agents can. And at the end of the day, of course, I can manage and understand how to negotiate a business deal and do my research and, and sell my fighter. So uh, I think that's the, the biggest difference is the, the other things that I have that I was prepared for, you know, coming in. So um, was definitely prepared and built for this environment.
Now, you're you're partnered uh, by and large part with Bob Arum, who is uh, Jose Ramirez's promoter. And, you know, there's no one as, as savvy and shrewd is Bob Arum, who's presided over some of the biggest events in boxing history. What are what are some uh, notes that you've learned from Arum that you're kind of continuing along in your career? So the best way to answer that is I studied Arum's career and what he did prior probably more than anybody. How they sold a show, where they went to get the money, whether it was a government or it was a city – or was a company. I looked at how they used to put fights together, how they would do PR, the controversy they would spin, the lines that they would walk when creating um, a PR situation for something good, but also keeping something bad or evil connected to it. I I just basically studied quite a bit of stuff and a little bit of uh, Don King and, and so forth, you know, going back, you know, 40 years. So to me, I'd I'd had a good idea on why he was so successful. And as a promoter, you know, you're just born a certain way. So you you have a lot of those things in you already. And for me, it was college uh, and and a postgraduate degree, applying and learning some of these things as I went from studying them. Uh, And look, you know, the first time I I, uh, did my deal with Aram, he told the press conference at the MGM uh, on the Pac Marquez show where Pac was uh, knocked out. That was Jose's professional debut at the MGM. I remember him telling the media after signing Jose and you know us talking that we'll see if Rick can deliver on his uh, pitch he gave me on putting on fights for Ramirez and making him more valuable and doing this. We'll see if he can pull this off. And uh, I still have that video, and I often remind him when I see him, hey, did uh, – do you think I pulled it off yet? So, you know, we, he's uh, he's been great. He is shrewd, and he is who he is. And I think a lot of people, you know, they, they look at that the wrong way. And trust me, I've had my own arguments with him. I've been cussed at, yelled at, uh, you name it. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, he's a businessman. And if you're a business person back, you're going to figure a deal out. And in some cases, he may have the upper hand. But that's because he's put him in a position – himself in a position to have the upper hand. And I think the the biggest thing when a fighter or a manager is dealing with someone like Aram is you need to go to the table uh, with things that will improve your argument for wanting more money. And I think that's the biggest thing. These guys go to the, to Aram and they'll say, we want this much for, for the fighter. But they have no basis for it. They have no reason to get there. In our case, I said, I want this god-awful amount of money for Ramirez. But here's how I'm going to justify it. I'm going to put this fight on for Ramirez, which is going to not only make top rank more money, but put equity into Ramirez from a exposure, branding, and PR standpoint. And I told him and Todd, I said, uh, this is way back, I said, who else could you sign that will pay for their own development to become a star? So, you know, in that situation, I put on 14 events for them. And without a question, it paid for his development, which means they passed giving him a sign-on that I that we asked for, we did our job. So we got the extra money we wanted, and we 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 uh, we justified it. And I think that's where his shrewdness and his hard nose negotiating and issues come in. Is not a lot of people will have the the backup to substantiate the ask. And I think that's what I learned the most. If you're going to sit at a table with someone at that level, you're going to need to and make that a request 
you better have a reason why that holds weight. And that's 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 probably the, the best way that I can explain that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with Jose, you've kind of built him into an entity, not only uh, beginning in Fresno and now anyone in the boxing public obviously knows him for his world title fights. However, uh, did you, you you have pretty much a full time presence in boxing right now, but did you expect for you to be staying this long? Are you kind of happy with how the, the career took a turn? So I'd be lying to you if I if I told you that I didn't sit in a dusty Alabama, Mobile, Alabama hotel room with Jose in 120 degree weather at the Olympic trials and tell him everything that's already taken place. We believed and knew back then and never, never stopped wavering. Even when top rank didn't believe for a stretch of time that he could get there or other people would criticize. We knew and never, there was never an ounce of doubt. So we did always believe that we would get here. Um, of course, it's still a blessing and sometimes surreal in, in some of these situations that we've had um, unfold. But without a question, we, we always knew that we would get here. It was uh, Jose's a special, a special, special fighter. When I say that, I'm not biased because I'm his manager and did this stuff. He really is. You don't find guys that are that well-rounded in and out of the ring he's a he's a philanthropist he dedicates himself to charity he you know he talks soft and hits hard he's he's an incredible athlete inside the ring he's achieved so much and from an ambassador standpoint i don't think the sport could find anyone better and you just don't find a fighter that has all of that in him the kid's got a heart of gold to be honest with you and uh you know the only place he's fierce and mean and and just I'd hate to be trapped with them is in those four ropes. Yeah, and you know th- that comes uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, how you've built him up as well too. And you know, in your Twitter profile, it says a gifted jab must have the gift of gab behind it. And I think you're <laughs> you you've definitely done your part to pump him up. And I think you know the marketing and the the just the the work that Jose has done in the community in Fresno as well too where you know there's a big Armenian population there as well too and I'm sure the work that he's done has impacted fellow Armenians as well uh what was that what was that course of action like as far as setting a strategy for him to be uh integral to the Fresno community so so something to make you laugh is a few of Jose's best friends are Armenian now like, it's the funniest thing. Like, I've seen Jose Armenian line dancing, and and I make fun of him. Like, aren't I supposed to be there doing this? <laughs> so it's so funny that, I mean, you wouldn't believe, but it really is. Um, from an early on standpoint, I mean, in 2012, we signed a contract. I said, what are you going to do with this popularity and fame and exposure we are going to get? What is dear to you? And there was a dusty field on the 99 freeway that was dry from a lack of water. And he pointed at that field and he just pointed at it. I said, well, what does that mean? You want to help dirt? And he looks at me and says, Rick, my, my dad and family couldn't work because that field is dry. He goes, when there's no water, there's no, no work for any of my family and friends, et cetera. He goes, I think that's what I want to help the most right now. And look, without having someone like Jose, no matter how good I am or any promoter is, 
you have to have the person to work with in order for the, the best outcome to happen. And at that point, I went to the Latino Water Coalition, and I I put a presentation on for them who was chaired by Paul Rodriguez, the comedian, and had 50,000 members and said, this is how boxing and water are going to uh, mix, and this is how we're going to get more exposure for this issue you're fighting for. And basically pitched and sold them on the idea that Univision – and their telecast could expose this water issue in a major way. And having a brand new Olympian, even though he was only three and zero at the time, this Olympian could cast some serious attention on that telecast because he's this good. And uh, that sparked the fight for waters, of which I did seven of them. Uh, and after the first one, all were arena shows and fights, and they got world news, world news. Aside from national news, we made so much attention and got so much done politically. Before I blinked, we had every senator, congressman, assemblyman, mayor, and political person you could dream of at our fights. Um, so I think that just dialing into Jose and bringing some of those things out of him at first was my job, just making him see that charity is important because it was already in him. So, you know, I made sure that every time we did a fight that there was a charity and a charitable act attached to it, whether it was cancer that got Ring Magazine's event of the year this this year that I did in February, 14,200 people. And, and the things I did with it, it all starts with you've got to have somebody that can carry that torch and, um, and, and you know, uh, get the stuff done that, that you do. And the only way I can describe it is every check I've written, he's cashed. And a lot of that has been recognized. I mean, I'm a part of the Boxing Writers Association of America, and during the Deontay Wilder, um, Luis Ortiz two rematch in Las Vegas, we got together with the organization. We were coming together with the nominees, and frankly, you know, it, it was it's an easy choice with you and Jose to be finalists for and nominees in your respective categories. Again, Rick Morigian, uh, a, man, a manager of the year nominee for 2019, and Jose Ramirez, who's nominated for the Good Guy Award. Um, and I'm sure all of that work that you guys have done is impacting Fresno. And when we come back from commercial break here, uh, we're going to talk about what that – uh, life like was in Fresno for you growing up and you know w where you want to take your career moving forward after this not a problem you're listening to Time Out with Manu Kakopian And welcome back, everybody. We are joined today by Rick Marigian, who is uh, pretty much wearing every hat in boxing nowadays as a manager, promoter, businessman. But he's at heart an entrepreneur who has uh, had a decorated career promoting the likes of Beyonce and George Lopez and Dwayne Wade and other athletes. And, you know, uh, we were talking about it earlier, Rick, and you mentioned... While you were in Fresno, that entrepreneurial zeal and spirit never waned, and it kind of started back with sports memorabilia. Am I correct? Yeah, I've bought and sold uh, a lot of different sports memorabilia and some of the most prized collectibles there is. And uh, a funny story was in Fresno, I pulled a Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant card in, I want to say, 2000 and 
G7 or four. I can't remember sometime in that time frame. And uh, I went home and I wrote a press release about it and said, you know what, I'm going to try to promote this Fresno man unearthed one of one basketball card. And uh, I, I actually wrote a press release and I copied every reporter I could find. And on there, I found Darren Ravel from ESPN at the time, his email address and put him on there. And the next thing I know, he called and, uh, he did a story about the card and I timed the card and the story, uh, to run on auction on eBay. And, uh, after his story and ESPN put it on sports center and the auction was up on eBay, the card fetched, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and, uh, was a, a modern day sports card record at the time. And then after that lightning strike struck again and an 80 year old woman calls me uh, out of the blue. And after that, ebay sports espn deal everybody that found a baseball card in fresno called me it didn't matter if it was a junkie 88 tops baseball card or something from the 50s like i'd get a phone call hey i want you to check this thing out rick and um an 80 year old woman called me and said hey i i bought a storage facility out and in it was a an old baseball card and i was going to list it on ebay for ten dollars and my friend said you need to call rick marigian with this card and see if it's worth anything and I remember I told the lady, sure, you know, mostly because she was elderly and, you know, I felt like I needed to go and see it because I had told plenty of people I didn't have time to look, you know, when they'd call me. But I met this woman and she had a raspy old voice and uh, she, you know, smoked cigarettes like no tomorrow. And when I first met her, she uh, approached me at a, we met at a Starbucks and she reached in her purse and pulled out a Ziploc baggie while holding a cigarette in between two of the fingers that had the baggie and hands me the item. And she says, my friend told me I'd probably get more than $10 for this. And I was going to list it on eBay. She goes, would you give me $30 for it? I said, no, ma'am, I I can't. I'm sorry. She goes, well, this is a waste of time. I drove all the way over here. God damn it. You know, and she's a, she's a funky old woman. Trust me. She's funky. And I'm like, she goes, well, just give me 20. I said, I can't even give you 20. She got very upset. And right before she was walking off cussing, I said, just hold on. I said, I can't buy it, but I can make you the most famous baseball card granny in the entire world. I said, this is the very first baseball card ever made in the world. There's only a handful in existence. It was an 1869 Peck and Snyder uh, Cincinnati red stocking card with the inventors of baseball on it, the Wright brothers. Spalding made it as a commercial advertisement to send out um, to people to sell their sporting stuff. 1869 Peck and Snyder. You can Google this. So at that point, I really had something in my hand, and I went and did another press release. And the next thing I know, uh, and basically on that one, it was you know Fresno grandmother unearthed you know one of the most rare items in the world in Fresno. So at that point, I was on the phone with literally with. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Oprah Winfrey, Jay Leno pitching. Who had the best time slot for me to go on to get her on there and that car to time an auction? Long story short, I ended up on uh, President Obama's inauguration night with Jay Leno, which had the highest audience and rating you can imagine from the jokes he was going to do, et cetera. So I ended up getting her on Jay Leno's and People Magazine, every other story, time the auction, and made history with uh, the sale of the very first baseball card um, ever made or printed 
out of Fresno and an old lady who bought a, a storage facility for 150 bucks. So, you know, those are two pretty incredible stories uh, along the lines of what um, you wanted to talk about. Well, the art of flipping defined by Rick Merigian. I love it. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I think you specifically are partly to blame for my baseball card collection because I've probably poured so much money in there hoping to find that gem that <laughs> never materialized. I, I probably have so much storage space just wasting away and I probably need to look through that thing to figure out what I'm going to do with it because, you know, obviously that's like a the uh, the cliche saying, the diamond in the rough, and you, you seem to strike gold twice there. Yeah, the third time I'm going to strike gold is in Top Rank's Hall of Fame matchmaker's office, Bruce Trampler. When I would go into Bruce's office and sit there, and I would become impatient and restless because I have ADD. I would open his, his drawers and go through his stuff, and I opened a drawer, and this guy had baseball cards in it, and I mean not regular ones. And I, like, almost fainted and said, who has 300 Jose Canseco-rated rookies? 300 of them. And I mean ones you could grade and get money for. And not just that card, but 85 tops of McGuire's, just – Rare stuff were considered pretty rare for the time frame, but so many of them of the key cards that you're going to get a graded one that's going to sell for ridiculous money. This <laughs> Bruce has a treasure troll of items in uh, sports card wise, just laying in his drawers. I'm not kidding. It's uh, so I tell him all the time, like, just retire and let me sell all this stuff. But that's that's my third find uh, that I've made that I, I need to get done. Well, uh, obviously, your big find at the end of the day is Jose Ramirez. And like we were talking about earlier, he has a big fight coming up February 2 against Victor Postol in China. And, you know, th there was news earlier with, you know, top rank also f signing a fighter named Josh Taylor. And, you know, th there's going to be a, a, a path paved for Jose to perhaps be a bigger household name uh, outside of the boxing community. Uh, what is the what are the challenges you're looking forward to overcome in 2020 to kind of keep keep that momentum going? So the path's already open. In fact, it's a freeway with no, with nothing on it right now. The path's done. Top rank signed Taylor uh, for this Ramirez fight because they knew that's what Ramirez wanted. So that path's done. The challenge is February 1st. Uh, household name, absolutely. Part of our renegotiation with ESPN and Top Rank entering into a contract extension, you know, recently, like you saw, was us getting this date. It was part of the negotiation that I made for Jose. I wanted this date because it's one of the largest, if not the largest, television audience you can reach. It's the night before the Super Bowl in primetime where everybody's TV is locked onto ESPN. Every bar, every airport, every restaurant it does not waver from ESPN. So us getting that date to me was one of the main reasons in re-signing and, and going down the path to let Jose show the world what he can do and get that platform finally and then hope that the Taylor fight could be made. Because that was my marching orders from Ramirez. I want Taylor. you know, I, And I was told he wanted Hooker before that and. You know, I had to go get that fight done. You know, we were told no three times and offered four other guys. So, you know, it wasn't easy. I had to, you know, go off on a tandem and, and get the fight off the ground myself before top rank, you know, really took heed to it and 
get it to a point where, you know, there was something to work with. And uh, I was told the same with Taylor. So I was ecstatic to know that they actually signed Taylor because that, that offers no roadblocks at all to getting this thing done. So um, I think that's the course and that's the plan right now. Um, and it's up to Ramirez from, from this point to do what he does. Yeah, and you know, you, you talk about that hustler's mentality, and I think that comes from the Armenian gene. You know, Armenians are, you know, predominantly business oriented. I mean, I mentioned earlier Kirk Krikorian. I mean, is there a bigger capitalist and entrepreneur than him? Where where did you get that gene from? Where did all your this the art of flipping uh, stem from? You anything? <laughs> yeah, flipping anything. No, it's what you said. I think it's just genetically in there, and it's activated. It's easily activated, and it's you're born with it. It's Armenian, and it gets activated at at the first chance it can. And that could be uh, you uh, watching somebody buy and sell something, a family member, a cousin, an uncle, a brother. Uh, just it just gets activated. But without question, um, I I know that's where it's from. You know, I watched my mom sell stuff at swap meets when I was four and five years old to make deals. Um, so, I mean, early on, I got groomed from every single angle you could um, to bring it out. But, you know, without question, that's, that's, I know that's where it's from. Yeah, and I know uh, the Armenian culture is a big part of your fabric as well, too. Uh, what was life like in Fresno growing up in a very predominant Armenian community? Um, I went to an Armenian church as a kid parents divorced young so i grew up with my mother and would see my dad on the weekends so you know i was exposed to every culture and nationality there was um you know in fresno i've got tons of african-american friends asian friends you name it so you know i got the best of both worlds you know, you could say you know uh, educationally both streetwise and in the classroom so um you know that's predominantly how you know i I, you know, grew up. And then, of course, you uh, have the basics. You have, you know, Armenian Christmas and, and the food and um, all of the cultural things you can imagine um, that I would participate through grandparents and dad and, and everything else. So, um, like I said, I got the I got the best of both worlds to some extent. Yeah. And um, you, you've kind of, and kind of going back to that hustler's gene, uh, I think what you've discovered recently is perhaps the second coming of Jose Ramirez, which is another uh, diamond in the rough for you, and Gabriel Flores. Can you talk to, can you uh, talk a little bit more about him for people who might not know and, and, and how that came to be? These are all crazy one-of-a-kind stories, and that's no different. Uh, at the time, I had built up enough credibility with Bob Aram to pretty much ask him anything. So I got in a fight with Gabe Flores' father, on Instagram, a bad one. Uh, he, and Gabe Flores' dad's from Stockton. He's a pretty rough and tough kind of guy, you know, period. And uh, I didn't know who Gabriel Flores was. And one day I saw a post on the Internet saying, my, you know, my son's the best amateur boxer there is, and he's from Stockton, and we just fought in Fresno. And I said, I never heard of your son. He can't be that good. I, I definitely, of all people, would have heard. And that sparked a very nasty fight that ended up with me calling his dad and uh and talking to him you know personally i obtained his number and from that point we we became friends and i met them uh a week later and spent three hours with them and um 
and I would approach Bob Arum with a deal that would make Gabriel Flores Jr. the youngest fighter at the time in the history of boxing in the United States to ever sign and go pro. Um, no one at that point uh, had even contemplated or even thought about signing a 16-year-old. And um, he got a six-figure deal, which was like an Olympic deal at the time. And uh, I told Aram I would do the same thing I did with Ramirez from a building standpoint, show standpoint, to mitigate some risk. And and I did. Uh, when he was old enough to fight in California, the first fight I did, um, I sold the Stockton Arena out, which was last year, uh, with 10,000-plus people. And uh, Gabriel fought on ESPN's main channel, got a knockout in one round, got looped on SportsCenter's top 10 highlight. And uh, he's currently, I think, 17-0 and fighting on the Fury Wilder card, which every fighter from the PBC and top-ranked stable called begging to get on, and he got on there. So uh, just a similar story, but these are special kids, and I've got chances to sign other kids and fighters and men, and, you know, just I won't, you know, and – to me, they've got to have that that special quality. They've got to have the storyline. They've got to have the 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 moral and ethical aptitude. They've got to have all these things for me to to uh, to promote, manage, and build and come out right. Because otherwise, I can't. So I've been very selective with what I've done, and and it's paid off. I mean, I always believed in quality over quantity, which was the reverse, I think, for a lot of managers. They rather have a, a stable of guys in case one makes it. I always believe that if you had quality in and out of the ring, these guys, that you'd have a better chances at one making it um, if you're applying the work ethic that I am to it. So um, Gabriel Flores has definitely been a special story in the first um, in the history books for that. Now, you've come into the boxing world uh, with no previous experience and really, really carved a lane for yourself and, and built trust with fighters and promoters. I mean, that, that that's pretty much cachet to move forward as you please. But I'm curious, is is boxing where you see your career as an entrepreneur and as a businessman pr- moving forward? What do you want to do? I, I love it. You know, I've, I I just love it. So I would hope that it stays in that realm um, because because I do enjoy it, you know, quite a bit. And you can be very entrepreneurial within it as well. There's tons of things that I'm working on that have that have spun off of boxing, but are not actual boxing related items. So uh, it's just a it's a it's a fun environment, stressful as humanly possible, and you deal with some very bad people once in a while, but you also deal with very good ones as a contrast. So I, I definitely want to stay somewhat in the space that um, that I'm in for a while, and. Um, you know, and go from there. Yeah, you, you you talked about it earlier. The crazy dad, the crazy uncle. I'm sure there's so many of them, and boxing just lends itself to that. You got to share one of the most unique ones. What's a what's one that sticks out for you that you just laugh about it looking at it now? I'm not going to name any names, but uh, this one uh, uh, a few years ago, um, I helped a young man from my area. Um, thought the kid had some potential, and. Uh, raised some money for him. He's a, he was an amateur, still is somewhat, but I raised some money for him to help with some of his travels. Took him in the ring at the, the big events I was doing to get him some exposure and notoriety. Um, organized his storyline and identity, and I started to help. And then 
you know, in comes his crazy uh, uh, dad, you know, one of those ones that think that they know everything but know nothing. And um, he began doing some bad stuff, taking money from every Tom, Dick, and Harry he could for his son, um, promising them everything under the moon. And uh, he tried to charge for his kid to fight in amateur fights around here, just completely wrecking behind the scenes any chance this kid has, in my opinion, someday to be what he could be or do what he could, especially within the foundation I've built here in, the, in Fresno in the Central Valley because he's from here. And uh, in the fight and argument with the dad, just I urged him to do the right things, and he wouldn't do them, continued to take the course of lying to people and actually caught his dad publicly say, doing food drives while stealing money from people I knew, tens of thousands of dollars worth, and uh, confronted him. And, and, of course, his dad you know, will bad mouth and say stuff about me and this and that. But um, that's one of the crazier ones that I've seen, uh, you know, happened where a dad just goes and does all this stuff, ruins it, um, just a complete horrible person in general. And um, you see that and you just know that it's not going to lead anywhere and how he affects his own kid's future by doing this stuff and not understanding that the best thing for him was sitting right there um, and the best opportunity for him to make the most money and get the best treatment and, and they could see what was happening in front of them. And, you know, you have these dads where they look at Jose Ramirez and say, my son's better than Jose. And they already think that and they talk like that before the kid has even been in the pros. And, you know, and, and, and that's what the, is the worst about the sport because I see so many guys with talent, young, and it never comes to fruition because the people around them screw it up in mass proportions like they ruin it they the the kid and fighter will be so loyal to their family and their family be so dumb and blinded and put themselves above their kid that it just destroys everything you know instead of putting the right people there and being real dads and real fathers and saying look i'm not the right person for this let me find that person and building a team around their kids you know, instead of doing that, they want to do everything. And they think they're going to be bazillionaires in the process. And then the person that suffers the most is that poor fighter because of that loyal bond to the dad or the uncle or the family. And they, they never truly get to see their potential fulfilled. That's the worst thing in boxing to me. Nothing, nothing beats that. Nothing. Yeah, and, you know, you see it all the time. There's so many stories and you know, throughout the years, uh, with uh, with the relationships you've built with your fighters, especially with Jose, um, again, who is fighting February two against Victor Postal in China. Uh, for those who might not know, Jose is a 27 year old uh, undefeated fighter, 25 and 0, 17 knockouts from Avenal, California, uh, which is obviously uh, part of the part near Fresno. And uh, Rick Morrigan is his his manager, and he's guided his career. And uh, Jose is um, the unified champion as a, a light, 140-pound uh, fighter, super lightweight, and the WBC and WO, WBO champion and, and looking forward to bigger and better things. And Rick will be, will be watching along in the ride, and uh, I'm sure I'll see you in Vegas for, for Wilder Fury 2. And... Uh, Best of luck to you moving forward, and I'm sure you, you got your eyes uh, glued closely to the next uh, Olympic class as well, too, here in 2020. 
I do. I do. There's a couple of kids I like quite a bit. Absolutely. And, and, and we're looking forward to reconnecting uh, once you have uh, some new careers to guide and uh, wishing you safe travels to China and uh, much success moving forward. Same to you. Take care.